Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. Well, we are starting our first episode of 2022 with a bang. I have with me my guest, Christopher Norton. Now, if you don't know, Christopher Norton is a massive voice in the world of music. He's composed concert works, stage musicals, ballet scores, orchestral music, jingles and signature tunes for TV and radio, and is probably best known and loved for his educational piano and instrumental work. And he is known and loved by students and by music educators all over the world and has sold over 1 million copies of his music over the past 30 years. He's also a lecturer offering creative presentations both live and online. He's an adjudicator and he just runs the gamut on wonderful things that he does to teach and inspire future musicians and music educators throughout the world. And he is here to enlighten and inspire us today with his story from his early days as a young composer in New Zealand to the many exciting projects that he has coming in 2022. Along the way, he will share nuggets of wisdom for teachers wanting to meet their students where they are, and also some very useful advice for composers who want to make a living and actually be successful as a composer. So I hope you learn a little something, and especially I hope you enjoy this conversation with composer Christopher Norton. So Christopher Norton, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just delighted to have you here. And a Happy New Year to you. Uh, and to you. How was your 21? Well, it's quite interesting because it's the second year of COVID, isn't it? Uh, so so right. everybody's kind of got used to the uh, the, the weirdly different rhythm of, of, yeah. not, <laughs> of, of not traveling for a start. Because my wife and I were traveling extensively all the time internationally, right. uh, as far mm-hmm. afield as New Zealand, lots in Europe, across to the States and all that. And it's all stopped. And we love it. I mean, we oh, love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but we're, we're both people who are used to working at home, and I've, I've done lots and lots of things online as well. Right. And it's just been really nice to, to, to not have to constantly be filling up all that time with queuing at airports. And, and, and I don't really yet fancy doing an international trip with a mask on either. So, <laughs> so um, no, we, we, we've had a good year. Uh, I've got lots, lots done which I'll be telling you a little bit about, and she's got a lot of stuff mm-hmm. as well because she's also a composer. And, of course, we're, we're of a certain age. I'm not far away from the time when people would think, well, you could retire, you know, so, so, so in a way we're enjoying an early retirement while still working. Uh-huh. Well, speaking of working, you throughout your career, I would think it's safe to call you prolific. You have written and composed so, so many pieces. Does it ever get old or do you just still love it? I still love it because when I write, rather, it's from a rather mysterious place. I don't know. I think most people who write or paint or whatever, you don't know entirely where you get it from. So I, I sit at the piano and suddenly I'm thinking of something. And I love that feeling of thinking, I, I, I like this. I don't know where it's going going yet, but we'll find out between us, between me and my uh, compositional self, if you like. So I still, I still really enjoy it. I'm actually doing writing and arranging every day, and uh, it has the same buzz as it as it did oh, when I was really? sixteen. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would like to talk about your childhood. So you started music very early. You started composing quite young. How did you get into music? Well, I didn't really start as young as some people do. I was fourteen when I started trying to write music for mm-hmm. the first time. Um, I'm from New Zealand originally, and there was no music in my family at all. Not my immediate family, anyway. But I was obviously very interested in music from a very early age because I was immediately listening intently if classical music played on the radio and that sort of thing. And my parents had some records, and I enjoyed all those. Um, I remember two of the records my parents had particularly was Burr Lives and the Korean Orphans Choir sing Christmas carols. 
and Tennessee and E. Ford sings gospel. I mean, it was, it was, that was the kind of region because my parents, my father became a minister subsequently, so they, they were quite a religious household. And so I, I, I heard hymns and songs of, of that sort, and I can play any any hymn in any key. You know, I, I learned mm. to play by ear uh, through church, if you like. Mm-hmm. But I was really keen on classical music. It was one of those funny things. Some children are just born with an instant identification with classical music. And I listened and played as much as I could find. And gradually, through having ownership of a tape recorder, started to record things off the radio, the concert program in New Zealand, and mm-hmm. became aware that certain composers I really liked. And, and, and I was mad keen, particularly on Nielsen, for instance, Carl Nielsen. Wow. Um, and actually sent away for the scores of all the symphonies when I was about 12 uh, from the really? publishers in Denmark. Yeah, I just, just was crazy about Nielsen and played his piano suite and Chacon for piano and all that. Wow. Uh, I was also mad keen on Prokofiev uh, and Rachmaninoff and Debussy and Ravel and, and, of course, all the classical composers as well. But because I discovered everything myself, in a way, I had a slightly unconventional list of composers who I was really drawn to. I remember Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nielsen, Shimanovsky, Martinu were four of my favorite composers when I was, you know, between the ages of 12 and 14 or whatever. And and I'd listened to all this stuff, read about them and and tried to find piano music by those, those composers. But at 14, I was in a summer holiday and there was a piano there. It was my cousin's. And I suddenly thought I'd like to write something of my own. I, I, I'd never done it before. And it immediately... Um, had influences, if you like, from all these things I'd listened to. You, you, and, and, and it's still like that in a way. I just have a lot of stuff I'm listening to. I still listen to music with great pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes out in your compositions in a, in a sort of a prism of your own particular voice, if you like. So so yeah. my own, I, I think my early pieces still sound like me. You know, I, I was there from the word go. Um, and I think, in fact, we might even have an example of a, a very early piece mm-hmm. uh, of mine, which you can hear uh, the influences, not quite writ large, but they're, they're certainly discernible as classical influences initially. some strange things happened in those days which might not happen now and one of them was that if you wrote your own pieces and were a reasonably good player you could go to the mm-hmm. local radio station and it would be broadcast on the national concert network so i actually went down and recorded on my pieces uh, at the local radio station when i was probably 16 wow um and of course they were they were quite good and and in fact they got the attention of people in wellington which is which is where i ended up living for a while um, but some of New Zealand's best-known composers were there, and one of them, in fact, lent me his house when I got to Wellington. So uh, the fact that I did something which was noticed during broadcast really launched me as, as, a, as a voice early on in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And then got a scholarship from the New Zealand government after doing my first degree in music and went to Britain to study composition.
there was another sort of confluence happen, and that is while I was at university, I got for the first time interested in pop music and rock and jazz because I hadn't ever really listened to any. I mean, not, I wasn't against it. I, I just, I, I was so mm -hmm. immersed in classical music. I didn't really sort of have that on my radar. Right. But a good friend of mine who is still a good friend of mine 40 years later, or would I say 50 years later, um, <laughs> was actually became one of New Zealand's best known rock critics. And he interviewed famous people like Bowie and Stones and like when they came through. But he said to me, oh, you, you're not, you just need to listen to the right stuff. And, and so he, he was my kind of musical mentor and gradually became aware of things I really, really liked. Okay, now who did he tell you to listen to? Well, it was the same as classical music, I think, um, in the sense that it wasn't necessarily a conventional list. Right. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite bands was Man, uh, who were a Welsh band. Okay. Um, I also uh, I was immediately drawn to Genesis, who, whose name you will know, mm -hmm. and and Yes. In other words, the sort of progressive rock thing were, were, were the uh, things that I particularly liked. But at the same time, jazz sort of uh, entered the frame, and I, I actually went on a little course, which was talking about jazz by a person who was the uh, um, principal bassoon of the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. And he, again, was talking about harmonies and jazz chord progressions and all that. And I, I knew immediately that I was interested in this and, and started to follow that up. And I joined a band for the first time in, in New Zealand. We had a keyboard or keyboards, and, and they said to me, I've never forgotten this, they gave me a whole lot of LPs and said, we're doing this, this, and this, and named the tracks on the LPs, and then said, that's it. So they were assuming that I would listen to them and work out the keyboard parts from the recordings. And they said, oh, by the way, while you're at it, could you do chord charts for the rest of the band? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thrown in, so, so I was thrown in, but in fact, I discovered immediately that I really liked doing all that kind of transcription stuff. Uh -huh. So uh, that became an interesting combination. In fact, my whole life's work, if you like, has been the collision between classical music background and, and popular music because when I was in New Zealand, I, I was um, teaching high school music for uh, three years, I think, while, while my wife was training to be a librarian. This is an exciting story, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what I mean is I needed a job. So, so I just right. got a job teaching music in high school. And, of course, they have no interest in classical music whatsoever. Right. Uh, kids of that age, they mm -hmm. were all interested mostly in heavy metal and heavy rock. And, and so I started delving into what the students that I had liked, yeah. but I also started writing for them. Oh. And then I started trying, because I was a pianist, I won the New Zealand main concerto competition when I was 19, doing a Prokofiev concerto, funnily enough. Oh. So that, I was at that sort of level. Mm -hmm. But I, meanwhile, was also playing in a band oh, how and funny. playing for church. So, so it was a real funny combination. And I started writing pieces in which I had all the rigor of classical repertoire in terms of fingering, articulation, pedaling, uh -huh. and so on. But it had the sound of popular music, and that's really my formula. I, yes. not, I didn't mean to. I mean, I wasn't setting out to do it, but that's why this Micro Jazz series, which is my best-known series, that's where it sprung from. It was a, that funny combination. and Because um, one, one of the earliest pieces... was from Micro Jazz uh, Collection 1, or 2 rather, called Oriental Flower. Now, that's not really a pop music piece, although it's got sort of jazzy overtones. Mm -hmm. it, it could be deriving from, from the world of Satie or Debussy, right, exactly. if you like. It's a kind of impressionist style. Uh, but meanwhile, the most popular piece of the same book... Mm -hmm. 
called intercity stomp. Yes. And in fact, I toured Australia a number of times in the later 80s. And Australian music stores used to have signs up saying no stairway to heaven. Right. But um, when this piece had been in the examination listing for quite a while, they actually signed up and saw saying no intercity stomp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Because kids would come into the store and thump out these G's on the piano. They thought, we don't want to hear that again. So, yes, so, yeah. yes, that I have taught that piece many, many But what many I'm times. saying is, if you might say, those two little fragments that I played you from the same book indicate the fact that I was working in multi-directions. Yes. And that's, I think, part of my success is, is that people get the book and the pieces are good, but they're not by any means um, pastiche. They're actually a composer's view on the styles, but they're also widely varied in in, in their um, provenance, if you want me to call call that word. You know where I got them from is from all sorts of places, and therefore I know that certain things. I love this sound, for instance, mm-hmm. and I, I use that quite often. Well, that's that's the final chord of the Debussy cello sonata, <laughs> you know, or I like the sound of this. Oh yeah. Which is B flat seven on my right hand and E major of my left hand, which is Martinou. He uses a lot of tritonal combinations of chords, um, mm-hmm. and, and again, even uh, intercity stomp. Uh, the funny thing is that that fragment I played you of that. Mm-hmm. Just beat it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the feel of it is beated by Michael Jackson. So, it sure so you is. can see. It's a weird, it's a weird kind of confluence of, of, of musical worlds, which happens to be me, and and I've managed to express, if you like, the the sort of range of things I like in in what how I write and what I write. But that's why students love it. It mixes the things that they know to classical to instrument. I mean, it just it fits students just perfectly. It's really good. And it also, I think the level of detail that you put in your scores helps teachers that may not be accustomed to playing anything but classical. It helps them to know, okay, this is how it's supposed to sound. This is something I can take and use it pedagogically as well as something that the kids love to play. Well, it's not just that. I think the articulation is incredibly specific. So if you play one of the pieces, I'm just trying to think, oh yeah, it was called Nefertiti Blues, um, mm-hmm. and, and unbelievably specific. Three-note phrases, a staccato, a two-note phrase, a, a grace note. And so you're learning the, the uh, how to play a style through through following the instructions on the page because there are mm-hmm. enough of them that you can't really go wrong. If, if you do exactly as written, you're doing it right. Right. And one of my favorite stories about my work actually came from Denver from, from the late 80s. I toured America a number of times in the late 80s, and Microjazz 1 and 2 had just come out, and this, this big burly keyboard player came up to me, and, and he was a professional keyboard player, and he said to me, Mr. Norton, I played through the first few pieces in your book, and I thought, this guy writes like I play. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? Because yeah. uh, that's what I was always hoping, that in fact, if you're a keyboard player in a, in a band, and you sit down and play my stuff, you think, actually, this guy does write like I play or, or writes like I should be playing, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't think of a better compliment than that. Yeah. Some of my students, sometimes when they get frustrated with classical, they um, they say, oh, I want to do jazz because that must be so much easier. And I say, are yeah. you sure? Are you sure? I don't yeah. think you're I don't think you understand how complex and how detailed jazz can be. And I find that your series is a fantastic you know, launching point to see if they really do like it because it has all of the detail 
that they know from classical, and it has so many of the same techniques, really. But also, it's very, it's very pianistic as well. Quite a lot of yes. jazz and pop music is arranged, but it's not really arranged that pianistically, or it can lurch between being quite hard and not, not very hard. What my pieces tend to do is be about the same level of difficulty throughout the piece. It's not suddenly a really awkward passage, if you like. Right. I think that's that's an important point. I'm not really consciously trying to do, but I've got to feel an instinct that 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 it's good to start with something and then not push it too far one way or the other, but trying to keep it at that level. And of course, most of my series connections is a good one. There's ten volumes in connections. In fact, there are eleven because it's a preparatory book. They're graded within the series. But each book is about the same level, so you can dip into the book anywhere, and they're all about the same level of difficulty. Partly because when I wrote them, I didn't really try to grade them. Somebody else graded them for me, so Mm. so a very good editor, and therefore he said to me, you appear to have finished grade three, but we're still shy of pieces for grade seven or whatever. In other words, I I had to fill some gaps, but but I didn't have to worry, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, I like the fact that it's a slightly subjective process and that, Mm-hmm. You just write lots of pieces and and then sort them out afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. That gives you more creative freedom. Yeah, yeah. When when I got to Britain in 1977, I I was quite quickly picked up by uh, a publisher. Uh, called Universal Edition. Universal Edition published Schoenberg, and they in particular they published uh, Karl Orff. Mm. Um, but they had an education manager, and I was introduced to them, and they asked me to do a couple of things. And one of them was a Christmas book, which was Improvisations on Christmas Carols, which is still very popular. And mm-hmm. in grade terms, it's about grade eight, so it's quite hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but the education manager at Universal Edition uh, said to me one day, he said, look, Chris, I've got a great idea for you. I'd like to write you to write me a series of graded pieces in popular styles. And I was at the Edinburgh Festival that year with a band doing a show, and I had some time, you know, in the evenings or whatever, and I wrote something like 40 pieces in a block, which became Micro Joe's 1 and 2. But he then left the company and emigrated oh. to Canada. He was, he was at <laughs> retirement age. And, he, and as it happens, nobody else in the company quite knew what I'd done or why I'd done it. And it just sat in my bottom drawer for two years. I mean, it, it was quite funny. Um, but then I taught the piano at York University in, in Britain when I first arrived to, to a number of undergraduates. And one of the undergraduates got a job at Boozy and Hawks, who are a very famous publisher. Mm. Mm-hmm. And her boss was the head of publishing. And he said to her, look, we've got a, um, a little arranging job that he's doing. Do you know any good young arrangers? And she she mentioned my name. And I did a job for them, and then I showed them the pieces for Universal Edition. And then he said, what else have you done? And I said, I've got these graded pieces in popular styles. And <laughs> in I played, the bottom of my drawer. <laughs> yeah, and I played two or three of them to him, and he said to me, this is going to be huge. And he named it Microjazz and was responsible for the whole marketing plan and dashing new covers from a French artist, which he commissioned. Mm. Um, and they really put their weight behind it, and the rest is history. But the moral of the story is if you've got something which is any good, it may sit in your bottom drawer because you need to find somebody who actually gets it. Yeah. Because, in fact, there's a wonderful story about Michael Jess, and that is somebody who worked for Universal Edition who's now passed away, so I can tell the story without fear of recrimination, <laughs> came up to the trade show in Britain about 1987. All my books are on the stand, and he knew that they'd kind of passed on the, the series. And he said to my friend, uh, whose name was Rex, he said, um, How, how's this going? 
this Christopher Norton series? And, and Rex said, very well. And the other guy said, why do you think that is? And Rex said, good marketing. And, and he pulled himself up to his full six foot two and said, well, it must be because it certainly isn't the music. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's, that's oh. the um, thing. You, it's like the Beatles being turned down by many companies before EMI took them up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not that I'm saying I'm the same as the Beatles, but what I'm saying is <laughs> no, you, 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 can, you can have some good stuff, you know, songwriters or whatever, right. but you still got to find someone who kind of understands what's your style and what you've done. Right. Or you're up against a brick wall, and I certainly have read about many bands who've changed record labels, and suddenly, or a person who signed them is no longer there, and suddenly nobody's interested. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I was so lucky that I happened to find someone who got totally what I'd done. And in fact, he's mm-hmm. still friends of mine. He's in his late eighties now. So anyway, there was a whole lot of luck elements, and then of course I did already have my second album written in the sense that I already had pieces. Further than those, because at the moment they came out, they were picked up by the Associated Board, two of the pieces, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Kids couldn't get enough of them. And so Boozy and Hawks put out more in the series. And that's partly why I'm prolific. I think they just said, we need two more books for a start. And then we need books of duets. Now we'd like to go into flute and piano, violin and piano. In other words, the series expanded to, well, I don't know how many, 150 books, perhaps. You know, it's a huge number of pieces. And they're not all oh the goodness. same pieces rearranged. I, I did different pieces for, for all the instruments as well. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. That's, do you ever run out of ideas? Well, no, because, as I said, they all come from the same place. I, I, I'm, and when I'm talking about composition to students, I often say, they say, I can't think of anything. I say, well, play me a note. And then I say, now you've started, because anything... You know what I mean? Any Anything is a starting point, if you like. So for me, anything is a starting point, although mm-hmm. many of the pieces, which have become particularly popular, I've started with a with a, a rhythm machine or, or a drum track. In other words, I do start start with a sort of a, a particular groove. That's immediately simulating uh, because you you react to hearing a rhythm by playing a chord or by playing, playing a, a series of chords or whatever, or a bass line or whatever it might be. I wrote the pieces in 1981. This is what this is where this all sprung from, but I didn't really get them published until 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did write them in 1981 when I walked into this office and he said how good you thought they were. That was 1981, so they are 40 years old. So it's the 40th anniversary of Microjazz, um, and so Boots and Hawks decided partly because of that, because it's it's strictly speaking, it's the 40th anniversary of when the pieces were written. Mm-hmm. to reissue my entire catalogue. Oh, wow. But the other reason they're reissuing my entire catalogue with new covers and everything is that everything I did practically had backing tracks with it, really good backing tracks, and still regarded as among the best backing tracks on the market. Oh, but, yeah, they sound amazing. But they're all on CDs. Mm-hmm. And, so, of course, most people these days don't have CD players or don't use CDs. So right. they've reissued all of the catalogue with new covers with links to, they say, basically available on all digital platforms, and they are. I've got a Spotify artist page. They're on Amazon. They're on on Apple and so on. So you can get the piano performances of the pieces played by concert pianists, and many of them being played by very fine British concert pianists who I love the work of, called Ian Farrington. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got the backing tracks with the piano playing with it and the backing track without the piano. And on some of them, we've got them slowed down as well. Oh, nice. So what I'm saying is you go to Spotify now and you can see 
Christopher Norton just look up my name and it immediately has huge numbers of books with all the all the backing tracks for them and all the solo performances for the ones that are available so far. So you can get the book, but then you, you've got access you know, through streaming or through downloading to all the backings as well without having to dig through a CD to find them. And what's interesting about it is that um, I discovered very early on a very fine musician who I work with for my whole life who did, who did the backings for me. He was just fantastic. He was a multi-instrumentalist, and he totally got my, what I was doing. Um, the rock preludes or Latin preludes are really, they're very sophisticated backings. And he played real guitars on them, and, and he programmed bass and drums largely. But he also was a very good arranger of brass parts and, and all that sort of thing. And the data is still extremely good. It hasn't really dated in that sense. And one wild example of that, in fact, is that I had three publications out in 1994 to 7 called The Essential Guides. Mm-hmm. And they're called The Essential Guide to Pop Styles, to Latin Styles, and to Jazz Styles. And it was like 30 pieces in each style, ranging from very early jazz to, to atonal jazz, in fact, in the jazz one. Mm-hmm. And the pop one is just a whole range of pop styles, including things like Journey or, yeah, or things like Sting, you know, I mean, all sorts. But mm-hmm. just little pieces for piano with, with fantastic backings, but they were never issued other than with MIDI backings. So that was an mm-hmm. even more extreme example. You had the book. And people had these mini discs on the front and thought, well, what do I do with this? Yeah. So what's happened? We're reissuing the books with new covers and with audio on all digital platforms derived from the original MIDI, but using modern technology to make them sound even better. Oh, fine. But on top of that, um, are you familiar with SuperScore? Yeah. Because SuperScore, I put all three essential guides are on SuperScore, as well as all of Connections. Oh, my goodness. So And, and lots of the micro jazz books as well. So so I've got a lot of pieces on that very plastic medium. It's wonderful. It's on iPad. It's a free download on the iPad. Mm-hmm. And then you can buy each other within the app. Uh, but that is interesting because the data you're hearing is in it's MIDI. Mm-hmm. So the MIDI programming, as the guy who invented SuperScore said to me, the MIDI programming that I, I have is the best in the world. It's better than anybody else. It's this guy that I work with. He died two years ago, actually, younger than me. Oh. Um, but he was just wonderful, and um, his legacy lives on big time. So so uh, mm. what I'm saying is I don't just have a body of work in print, but I've got an incredible body of work in audio as well. And, and also, because of SuperScore, it's available in, in the MIDI medium, which, which means you can mm. button out the left hand or the right hand. You can actually remix the backing track as well. You know, like to, you can play with just the drums. So it's a fantastic right. medium for um, doing what I did, which is basically messing around yourself, you know, where you actually have just the drum track and you've learned the piece and you think, I'll just have a little go at playing, at writing my own piece. I've set that for students sometimes and say, look, here's a, here's a track in a particular vein. Why don't you have a go at just doing your own thing on top of it and see, see what comes out? You know, it's, it's a good little exercise. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. Yeah. MIDI is, it's such a useful tool if you can use it properly. So that's incredible that you it's have still, it. It's still a very useful, it's still used a lot. I mean, film scoring is right. a lot of that's done in MIDI still. There's no doubt about it because they're using triggering samples. Right. Um, so I'm using MIDI still every day.
Uh, well, let me go back to your original question again. You mentioned what's the big news, and that is my, that we didn't just reissue the entire catalogue from Busy and Hawks with new covers and with the audio separated and put onto platforms. What happened as well was during the pandemic, I had a chance to go through my archive, and it was really funny. I had a folder of piano pieces, and I got them out, and they were really good, and they're all about grade seven, eight, quite advanced. And and I, I couldn't even remember why I'd written them. Anyway, I showed them to Boozy and Hawks, and they said, we agree, these are great pieces. And they put them out as micro-jazz collections four and five. So we've got the first new micro-jazz piano books since the early 80s. Oh, my goodness. And they've come out this, well, just at the end of 2021, they came out. And they're, they're, if you look at Spotify, for instance, micro-jazz collections four and five are there, but I've also done them all on YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel. And yes. uh, all of Micro Jazz Collections 4 and 5 are there on film. So, so I've actually recorded them all on, on video as well. Well, that's so perfect. And again, it just goes with how you are meeting the students where they are. And it seems like you've done this throughout your entire career, you know, from the first time you wrote music for those high school students to now you're meeting them on the digital platforms and that's where they are. And it helps them to connect with you as a composer, but also with your music and just yeah. music in general. It's so well, smart. Well, in fact, one thing I'm th- I've, I've done, I've done short videos of the essential guides, which I'm going to put out on TikTok. Oh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you never know. <laughs> Why not? That's, that's impressive. I wanted to read this quote for you. Um, Boozy and Hawks, they just love you. Um, There is a quote from James Eggleton. He's been recorded saying, what makes Chris's material so unique is his ability to say something that really captivates the player and the audience in a very small space of time. I just love that. Yeah, that is a lovely quote. And he's he's my, you might say, my boss at Busy Norks. He's the head of publishing now, but he's a great guy. And um, I've just signed a new contract with Busy Norks. And my first contract with them was back in the early 80s. So, So I'm still in the same relationship with the publisher after over 40 years, which is very unusual, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what's amazing about Boozy and Hawks is they are putting everything on boozy.com that I've written, not just pieces that they publish. In other words, they're selling connections as well. Oh, are they selling connections too? Yes, yeah. So they actually are saying to me, we'd like to to, to have everything you've got, uh, you know, because, of course, there's an unusual story connected to, to my own company, 80 Days Publishing, mm-hmm. it is another um, thing which I've sort of started up over the last little while. One of the reasons that started up is I've, I've had a number of projects which are slightly more specialist, you might say. Okay. And I wanted to put the books out, but Boots and Hawks, uh, being a, a sort of mass market publisher, if right. like they don't tend to do things unless they think they're going to sell a couple of thousand copies at minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I quite like that of being able to put out editions where you might sell ten every year, or you sell ten in, in, in every territory. You know, mm-hmm. uh, not not that I'm a- aiming for small numbers, but I'm just saying some things are slightly more specialist. For right. instance, uh, I had a clarinet sonata, a bassoon sonata, mm-hmm. a trio for bassoon, clarinet, and piano. Um, micro jazz for recorder ensemble and so uh, i i was approached some years ago by someone who was a typesetter uh, who had actually typeset even early micro jazz books he's been typesetting for all the major publishers for years he's based in scotland now 
And he said, I'd like to sort of start this company up where we basically showcase your music. And for the materials that come under Microjazz and so on, Boozy and Hawks are still the publishers, so I pay them a royalty. How does that work? Well, it just... Oh, because just they own the rights to it? Yeah, and the rights to the pieces, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but they pay me a retainer and advance royalties and all that, so I've still they're still oh, looking after me, if you like. But but I pay them something back for, for the 80 days imprints. But something else okay. happened, which is really an unusual story, uh, and that is Connections was written for the Royal Conservatory in 2005. Right. Mm-hmm. And the person who ran the publishing division of the Royal Conservatory in Canada at the time said to me, we'd like to do this series with you, which is a series of graded pieces and popular styles. It was basically the same notion as microjazz, but across yeah. eight levels. And he mm. said to me, the thing is, we're in Canada and we also are trying to get into the States. Mm-hmm. Booze and Hawks aren't really doing anything much in North America. We would mm-hmm. like to own the publishing rights to this series. Even though I was under contract to Boozies, I said, ask them if they'll release this series. So they don't publish it, but it's published by us because they said you're going to achieve so much good publicity through this series that uh-huh. it's worth them ha- having it out there even if they don't own it. And at the time, I got them at the right moment, they agreed, right? Oh, wow. So th- that series was owned and published by the Royal Conservatory. Right. Wheel forward to 2018, I just arrived in Canada having emigrated here from Britain. Mm-hmm. And I was approached by the Royal Conservatory and they said, for one reason or another, we're divesting ourselves of everything except our exam books. Mm. Would you like to buy the Connection series, publishing rights and all? Wow. And the name and the website. And I said, I certainly would. So I, I bought the entire series. So I own the Connection series. And that's become the main plank of 80 Days Publishing. Because oh what goodness. I've done then is I've, I've expanded the series upwards and downwards to Connections 9 and 10, preparatory duets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just about to put out connections for flute oh, fine. Uh, and piano, for clarinet and piano. We've already got some out for violin and viola and piano. Mm-hmm. So I own the rights to those to those books. So it's a mixture right. of, of things owned by Booz and Hawks, which they're, they're, they're just sort of more specialists, which they're not, they wouldn't publish necessarily, but they own the rights to. And then I've also got this whole body of work, which I do own. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so it's an interesting combination. Yeah. And anything uh, connected to 80 Days, it's called 80dayspublishing.com, mm-hmm. is available anywhere in the world um, from the 80dayspublishing.com website because we've done it with uh, in conjunction with a, an online publisher. Okay. So that if you're in Brazil or if you're, if you're in Australia, you can click on it and it takes you straight into your own currency and it prints them in, with printing presses in your own country. Mm. So, so you don't have shipping costs. Like it's not being shipped from Canada or from from Britain. It's shipped within your own country. That's so smart. So it brings the prices down yeah. quite a lot, mm-hmm. you know, because that's a problem. I've had some stuff published by a Canadian publisher, who are very good, but they said they always look slightly nervously if they get an order outside of Canada mm-hmm. because it's costing double the amount just to post one book right. for, for the price of the book. Yeah, yeah. So, so AT Days has gone down that route of, of having a an online publishing house which has 120 presses around the world. And so you, you don't have to worry wherever you are if you listen to this broadcast. Uh, in fact, same with America. They're pressed within the States and shipped within the States. That is so smart. Yeah.
Uh, the other thing I should mention before we finish, by the way, you probably know this, but but I've actually written thirty stage musicals as well. Yes, the the micro musicals. Micro musicals. Right? Yes. These were commissioned first by uh, uh, some schools in London, England, and and they had a ru- whole program running of them. In fact, two of the schools had a micro musical being done every term with every year group. Can you believe that? Oh, fine. Um, but they're, they're, again, easy tunes to pick up. They're curriculum-based. Uh, they're, they're designed for, for kids up to the age of 11, broadly speaking, from 5 to 11. Um, and my wife is a very good scriptwriter and, and lyricist, so she she's joined the team because my first wife died in 2013. Oh, I'm sorry. And like Boozy and Hawks, I was, I was with her for 41 years. <laughs> so so, my oh. first, so but I remarried in 2014. To a Canadian who's a piano teacher who I'd known for years, who was a close friend already, um, but we were just friends. And um, she is, is a wonderful composer. Her name's Wendy Edwards Beardall Norton. It's rather a mouthful, but she's got her own <laughs> Spotify site and website as well. Um, okay. So it's rather nice having that sort of association. But it means at the moment I'm, I'm preparing uh, for publication 24 more micro musicals through Boozy and Hawks. Uh, which are going 24. to be coming out. Yeah, because we've got six out already. But wow. they're doing another 24, which are already written, but we just haven't put them out. They're going to be available through Amazon. In other words, it'll be, again, print-on-demand kind of thing. Right. Um, but that's that's been a, an ongoing project as well, um, which is really fun. Yeah, so these musicals, they're curriculum-based, so they have like a subject, like Romeo and Juliet, and they're presented Romeo and Juliet is children. one of them, yeah. There's one called The Vikings. There's one about uh-huh. the Great Fire of London. As one about the American Revolution, oh. so, so yeah, so so and the the kid, I teach the entire musical in one sitting. I have a group of like eighty eight year olds, and I teach them all the songs of a musical in one sitting, and they've got them because yeah, they're they're that the tunes are that easy to pick up. They cover a very wide range of styles as well. I mean, you, you'd be surprised. Um, we haven't got that much stuff up there yet, but that again is going to go onto digital platforms, so people will hear. The the vocal demos. That well, congratulations on all of this happening. Last question. Yeah. I know there will be young musicians listening to this and just listening about your life and wanting to be you, pretty much. So, what um, what advice would you give to young musicians or young composers as they embark on their composing careers? I think one of the things that, that I discovered, I, I was studying music at university level, mm-hmm. uh, and I was writing short tonal piano pieces in the middle of a milieu where everybody's expected to write um, hard-nosed serial music or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I just didn't I just didn't do it. I didn't – I mean, I could, but I, I decided I'm just going to do what I like the sound of. Mm-hmm. In other words, I followed my own voice, uh, and that's why I've been successful, I think. I think and, and I think everybody's got a distinctive voice already, uh, so there's, there's that. Believe in your own voice. But secondly – I'm doing quite a lot of, of um, publishing of other people at the moment, and I've got some lovely pieces from a piano player, an American piano player, uh, which I think are really good. They're all black note duets, so, okay. so it's for kids to play just black notes. But but there's no editing. In other words, there's no phrasing, articulation, pedaling, or, or fingering. And so I'm saying the next thing to do is try and make sure that you, that you notate exactly mm-hmm. how it should be phrased and articulated and all that, get, get that notation looking really good. And the, the other thing is, of course, is, is to explore the, the notion of what the accompaniment might be. In other words, though it's play around a little bit with backings, if it's in a popular style, of course. Um, the other thing is a lot of composition students I've got, this is adults as well as stu- uh, students, they come up with an idea 
and then they go straight on to another idea and then another and another and never come back to the first one. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking, well, all the, all the models from Beethoven to Bronze, uh, being a good example or whatever, they have an idea and it's very clear they repeat the idea, mm-hmm. perhaps with some variations, then they can do another, then they come back to the first one again. Uh, there's too much composition done, which is pure rhapsody, where, where they, they, they've obviously forgotten what the first idea was. They're just improvising freely, uh, and, and therefore the listener get, kind of loses the thread. Right. So I'm, I'm saying try to be logical in your in your compositions as well. Quite a few people would like to do film music, but a lot of the time that's very logical, in other words, or, or uses motivic uh, ideas. You know? In other words, if you've got an idea, believe in it enough to actually repeat it for a start mm-hmm. i don't know if that's useful advice but i'm saying most of the ideas i come across with with uh, composition students and compositions from teachers the ideas are good but, but they don't quite believe in them enough to, to work them yeah I, I come up with an idea and i work it and and you might say sometimes i turn it into a good idea when it, it, it's just a row of notes initially but somehow it achieves a certain amount of memorableness if you like through that combination of repetition and um and variation. Uh, one uh, lovely little jazz anecdote, actually, it's about improvising, but it applies to composition as well, which I love. Somebody said once that too much repetition, the audience gets bored. Too much variety, they get alienated. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so I think you need you need to sort of strike that balance between repetition and variation, if you like, um, when you're doing composition. The other thing is, as I discovered, if you write stuff and you think it's good, it could be in your bottom drawer. You need to find the right person mm-hmm. or people who understand what you've done. <laughs> and, and so don't assume just because you get turned down that it's because it's no good. It may be because you haven't struck the right person who, who kind of gets what you've done. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent advice. And the other thing is write stuff beyond what you've written now because if, if you do have any opportunities, you know, it's like bands with their second albums, you don't, you don't want to suddenly think, oh, I, I've written all the stuff I can write. I don't know what else to write. You know, mm-hmm. Have stuff in your bottom drawer ready to go. <laughs> I love that. I've still got stuff in my bottom drawer ready to go from way back, you know, which – and sometimes I don't think that much of it, but then uh, then I bring it out and think, actually, no, I can see why I liked it at the time. Yeah. But, but it could be 40 years later. Right. It's never too late. Never too late. <laughs> I love it. Christopher Norton, I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for meeting with me today and speaking about your wonderful career, your fantastic music. I just wish you all the best in 2022. And I'm going to be looking forward to seeing what comes next from that amazing mind of yours. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to composer Christopher Norton for sharing his time, his expertise, and his music with us today. I'll have links to all of the resources mentioned in today's episode, including Chris's digital resources and platforms, Boozy and Hawks, and 80 Days Publishing, as well as the links to all the other talented composers and musicians mentioned today. And all of that will be on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Be sure to spend some time there and explore the incredible amount of music and compositions and resources available to performers, students, and music teachers. In today's episode, you heard excerpts from various periods of Christopher Norton's career. You've heard Bush Piece Number 1, Trio for Two Violins and Piano, Silent Night from Carol Jazz, Nefertiti Blues, Oriental Flower, Inner City Stomp, Merengue from Essential Guide to Latin Styles, 
Gospel from Essential Guide to Pop Styles, Frankly Speaking from Micro Jazz Collection 5, and Strawberry Soda from Micro Jazz Collection 4. Each of the pieces was composed by Christopher Norton and was shared today with permission. Musicians vs. the World is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, share this episode with them. Or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts that really does make a big difference in helping other people to find our show. If you have any topics you'd like to be discussed or questions about music or musician life that you'd like answered, be sure to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Thanks so much. 